Father, we thank you for bringing us to this fourth evening together in this series on the history of interpretation. And I pray that tonight, as we spend time with your servant, uh, now departed Karl Barth, that we would hear well, not, Lord, for the sake of being slavish followers of Barth or being Bardians, um, but because, Lord, we want to be better readers of your word um, because we, we are hungry to hear from you. And if he can help us in that, Lord, as I believe he can, um, I ask that we will be able to learn well. And Lord, tonight, as I teach and as those who are here to listen, listen, um, Lord, we ask for clarity and for both the teacher and those who are hearing. And if any of that happens, we know that it will be of your kindness and your grace, and we give you praise and thanksgiving even now. We ask these things in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. All right, I have two handouts for you tonight. Um, The one is what we'll work through, the Theological Lecture Series handout. And it's... um, it's six pages long, uh, so I, I hope you're ready for nine and about nine-ish tonight. We'll go. No, I'm joking, but there's more material here than I think we'll be able to cover. Does everybody have, have it? Okay. The other thing that I handed to you is a little bit self-serving. I'm kind of a, a little bit embarrassed to do it, actually, but this is an article that I wrote um, several years back now, actually, um, on, it's entitled Aura. Um, at Labora, or and we're going to talk about this tonight, um, pray and work. That was how Barton understood the theological task, praying and working. Um, and I entitled this Bart's Forgotten Hermeneutical Principle. We'll talk about this as well. Um, but that's just for your reflection. It's a piece that came out in Expository Times. Maybe it'll be of some benefit to you um, if you have time to read it or you need to fall asleep on a plane. Um, that's It's there for you. I wanted to start tonight by reading out of Isaiah because uh, we're going to talk in a little bit in an abstract way tonight about Scripture and uh, interpreting Scripture, and we won't turn a lot to the Bible per se. Uh, And because of that, I think we should start with the Bible. So let, let me do that. Isaiah chapter 40. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Uh, Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Those of you who have done some Isaiah study, you know this is the great turn in the book. You go to chapter 39, you have a lot of judgment leading up to there, and then you turn into chapter 40, and now we've gone into this great hope. Comfort, comfort, my people, says your God. You you will recall in Isaiah chapter 6 that the prophet saw the Lord high and lifted up, and uh, he, he had his lips that had to be, be cleansed from the angels that were there. They came, they cleansed his lips so that he could be clean to do his prophetic work. And then the Lord tells him, and by the way, now that you've offered to go and do this, here's, here's what you're going to do. You're going to go and minister to these people, and the, the effect of your ministry is going to be to make their ears deaf and their eyes blind. Go to these people and do that. And it's kind of, it's, you know, I don't think that was, a, that was called prophetic small print. I mean, he didn't know what was coming. But it's very interesting how the Lord describes his people there in Isaiah chapter 6. Go and say to your, to your people, not, not my people, Isaiah. Go and say this to your people. Remember what Hosea's first child was called? Or maybe the second child. Lo, Ami, not my people. I think this, is this coming off a little hot? Or is that okay? All right, it's fine with me. I feel a little bit like Britney Spears, but that, that's, um, I really don't, actually. Um, now it says, comfort, comfort, my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem, cry out to her. A voice cries in the wilderness, it's all its Advent, Advent language. In the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley is going to be lifted up. Every mountain and hill is going to be made low. Uneven ground shall become level. The rough places will become a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. And all the flesh shall see it together. Why? Because the mouth of the Lord has spoken. It's a favorite Isianic phrase. The mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, cry. Verse 6, and I said, what shall I cry? And this is the first prophetic word. All flesh is grass. All its beauty is like the flower of the field. And the grass withers. The flower fades. When the breath of the Lord blows on it, surely the people are grass. That's me and you. We come and we go. The grass withers. The flower fades. 
but the word of our God stands forever. I think this is of interest, at least from the standpoint of Isaiah, and it is a nice entree into our work on Bart tonight. But after Isaiah chapter 39, we never hear the prophetic name Isaiah mentioned one more time. The prophetic persona of Isaiah does not show up again. He's, he's not there anymore. And I think there's a kind of theological purpose behind that. And it's right here in verse 8. The grass withers, the flower fades, all of us are like grass. That includes prophets. They come and they go. But the prophetic word of the Lord, that will stand, that stands forever. And it's that prophetic word that then becomes the key and central dramatic figure for the rest of the book of, of Isaiah. Karl Barth was a theologian of the Word of God. He was a theologian that took seriously the Bible. He took seriously the Bible as it witnessed to Jesus Christ. If you were to go to, uh, to Basel, Switzerland, which I haven't been there, um, but if you go to Basel, Switzerland, to the Bart archive, or archive which is still um, as it is the day that Bart died, to this day. Still the same April something or the other, 1968. The, the, the desk calendar is open. His books are all there. You can go in and do research there if you set up an appointment. It's, it's, a, it's a great museum now. But if you were to go into Bart's office, there, are, there were a few things that were hanging on the wall. There was a picture of Calvin. There was a picture of Mozart because he had a real... Um, matter of fact, Bart thought that there was an incarnation other than Jesus that might just have been Mozart. Um, so he, he listened to Mozart every morning. And then there was another piece as well that was very important that hung over his desk. And it's one that you're all very familiar with. I think it was on the cover of our Lenten preaching series uh, pamphlet this year, the Guggenheim altarpiece. The Guggenheim altarpiece where you have um, John the Baptist uh, with, his, with his crooked prophetic finger um, pointing to Jesus that's hanging on the cross there, suspended between heaven and hell. It's a gruesome scene. It's not a pretty scene. He's a broken, marred figure there on the cross. And there is the, there's the prophet pointing away from himself to Jesus hanging on the cross. And that was the picture that hung in Bart's, in Bart's um, study. And it really shaped, I think, the way in which we might have an entree into under, understanding Bart's theology. Bart's theology was a theology that strove to be a witness to the Word who is Jesus, to point away from itself to Jesus Christ and all the kind of spiritual force that comes along with that. Um, and, and Bart would raise these kinds of questions like, what does it mean to be a Christian? What makes a Christian a Christian over against all the competing opportunities out there for what it means to be religious? Is it piety? And Bart says, well, piety is definitely a part of being a Christian, but it's not at the core of what identifies Christians because there are other religions that are pious as well. Have you ever been around a pious Buddhist? Have you ever been around a pious Muslim? They're, they're pious as well. Well, then maybe it's um, morality. Maybe it's morality that makes Christianity Christianity vis-a-vis -vis all the other competing religions. But it's not necessarily morality either. Because other religions claim certain kind of moral instincts as well. So then Bart says all of those things are part of what it means to be a Christian and they're not to be minimized or, or to be taken lightly. But at the end of the day, what makes Christianity Christianity? And the answer that Bart gave to that in the latter part of the church dogmatics was what makes a Christian a Christian is a Christian lives solely to point away from himself or herself as a witness to the reality, to the lordship, to the saving character of Jesus Christ. That's what makes a Christian a Christian. We point away from ourselves, like John the Baptist did in the Guggenheim altarpiece, to point to that one and to say, all of reality, all of our lives, the way in which we view the church and the world, every aspect of our existence finds its touchstone and that person right there, Jesus of Nazareth, fully God, fully man, suspended between heaven and hell. That's what makes a Christian a Christian. It's quite fascinating, actually, because I think you know, it would be an interesting experiment, experiment for all of us, myself included, to be given a three-by-five card with a pop quiz and say, to tell me what makes a Christian a Christian. Now, Bart had a very clear notion that it's the gospel that's what, that is what makes Christianity Christianity, the good news that we find in Jesus. All right, I'm just curious. Anybody in here done some reading on, of Bart in your past life or in college? 
Okay, there's some there. I'm, don't be, no shame here, no shame. How many of you have never heard of them before, this thing here? Okay, so this is new, this is new for some. Um, Bart was born in the late 19th century in, in, uh, in Germany, and he, he, he actually died in 1968, so he covered a long sp- a span of time. Um, what's the best way to sort of give you a, a view of what happened to Bart? Well, I think this is the best way. Bart was trained in theology in the latter part of the 19th century in the best of the German theological liberal tradition. Those were, that's where he was trained. He was trained by names that may not, might not mean anything to, to you, but these are just big luminary figures in the history of, of Protestant liberal theology on the continent in the latter part of the 20th century. Names like Albrecht Ritschel. Names like Wilhelm Hermann, who had a significant impact on Bart and his thinking. Adolf von Harnack, and all of those who found their touchstone, really, in the genius. And I will say that, even though I have big criticisms to make of this figure, the genius that is Friedrich Schleiermacher, who was the great father of Protestant liberal thought. And what was happening here on the far side of modernity, um, to try to find out what religion is all about, what Christian theology is about. Where does one locate a theology? And the answer became decidedly one that turned toward the human subject, toward you and toward me, to define theology no longer in terms that were primarily theological. We're talking about God. But we talked about humanity first on the way to talking about God. So that for Schleiermacher, for example, and this is very reductionistic, but for Schleiermacher, what theology is, is a tapping into religious feeling. What does it mean to be a Christian for Schleiermacher? It's to have this sense and feeling of dependence, this feeling of dependence on on the other. And where do we find that? We find that in the historical Jesus. He had his own sense of dependence on the other. And now, religious experience moves from the periphery of the Christian life down to its center and to its core. Christian experience, human experience, the human subject, that becomes the means by which Christianity in toto, in completion, is, is understood. So this sort of understanding of God as omniscient, omnipresent, what we might call metaphysical approaches to God, are being displaced for a more religious approach to God that begins with humanity, uh, sort of a grounds-up approach, approach to God. Bart was trained in that liberal tradition. He could speak that liberal tradition. That's what he, where he learned his ABCs of theology. And then he was released into the church, I, I encourage my students with this, actually, at Beeson, to remind them. You know, Karl Barth never took a Ph.D., right? He, he never went on to do formal postgraduate training. Now, that doesn't take away from his genius, but he never did that. He worked out his theology on the anvils of being in local church pastoral life. He went from his formal theological training under the best of that liberal tradition that had turned toward religion over against theology, so that what theology is is the discovery of the self and religious feeling, not the discovery of God, but religious feeling itself. And then he goes into the church, and now he begins to preach. And he's got a crisis. Because when he begins to preach and try to move from that liberal theological training and turn that into the pulpit to be able to do a thus saith the Lord thing for his people, he said, I did not have the tools to do it. The German theological liberal tradition did not give me the tools to help parishioners come into contact with God. And he knew that's what they needed, was coming into contact with God. World War I comes onto the scene. The world gets turned upside down. He's in this small little village in Saffinville as a pastor. And so what does he say that he does? He says, I knew that if I was going to sort of turn things over for me theologically, I had to go back to the Bible. It's kind of a novel idea, isn't it, right? I needed to turn back to the Bible, the Old Testament and the New Testament. And then one of my, I'm going to read this to you from... Um, Eberhard Bush's biography on Karl Barth, which I commend to you, um, for those of you who may, might be interested in this, uh, uh, Bush was the last secretary that Karl Barth had for the last eight years of his life before he died. But listen to what Barth said. This is a quote from him. In fact, we found ourselves compelled, that is now on the far side of recognizing that the liberal tradition just wasn't yielding the fruit we hoped it would, we found ourselves compelled to do something much more obvious. We tried to learn our theological ABCs all over again. 
beginning by reading and interpreting the writings of the Old and the New Testament more thoughtfully than before. And lo and behold, they began to speak to us. But not as we thought we must have heard them in the school of what was then modern theology. Then he goes on to say, I sat under an apple tree and began to apply myself to the book of Romans with all the resources that were available to me at that time. I began to read it as though I had never read it before. I wrote down carefully what I discovered point by point. I read and read and I wrote and I wrote. I mean, it is interesting, isn't it, when you think about the importance of the book of Romans in the history of Christian theology and actually Western Christianity, period. It was Luther's lectures on Romans that sort of unleashed the Reformation. It was Bart now on the far side of his modern theological liberal training that was then engaging Romans. And in his engaging of the book of Romans, things began to unleash for him. And what happens? He writes a commentary. In the latter part of the 1910s, he writes a commentary in the book of Romans. He said he really wrote that first commentary on Romans to be something for his friends. Really just some notes that he had taken, given it to his friends to help them think through these things. But then it went out, and it was published. And it was described as a bomb that dropped on the playground of the German liberal theological tradition. Just dropped. Boom. Why? Because Barth had given a lecture... Things were fomenting for him as he was rediscovering how to do this thing from the ground up. What he discovered was the Bible. What he discovered was Reformation theological instincts. Those things came together to begin to create a kind of foment that led to a discussion that really was, properly described, a bombshell. And and what was it that Bart said he discovered? He said, when I went into the Bible... To read the Bible from the Old Testament into the New Testament. Do you know what I discovered? That it's not first and foremost about me. (laughs) Right? But it's first and foremost about God. That was his famous lecture that's been translated in English, The Strange New World of the Bible. In German, it's just simply The New World of the Bible. It was a lecture that he gave early in his theological career. And what he said was, when I came to the Bible, I found that it was a world that I didn't even understand. It was a strange world, a different world. And what I found in that world was not really a mirror reflecting me. But what I found in that world, that was the modern liberal tradition. But what I found in that world was God. Someone who was infinitely, qualitatively different than I was. Holy other, different. I found God. Well, I wanted to read these things to you here. Uh, these are the top of your handout. So Calvin wrote, I mean, Bart wrote the first edition. It created, a, it created quite a stir, lots of critical reviews. And the main point of a lot of these critical reviews of Bart's epistle to the Romans was... Uh, From a historical critical standpoint, you didn't tell us enough about Paul. In other words, you read Bart's commentary in Romans and you're like, well, I want to know more about the Greco-Roman world. I want to know more about Paul and his psychology. You didn't tell us enough about the historical Paul. And this was the very shrewd and deft response that Bart gave to his detractors. I, I, I still think this has a lot of cash value to it. He said to them, I would tell you in my commentary more about the Apostle Paul if I thought the Apostle Paul was interested in telling you about the Apostle Paul. In other words, if I thought Paul had an interest in talking about himself, then I'd go at that. But he's not doing that. In fact, he's in a tyrannical way pointing away from himself to God's revelation in Jesus. And that's what I'm going to talk about in my commentary, not the psychology of the first century apostle. Have you ever noticed this, by the way? I'm sure I've said this in other contexts, so forgive me for repeating. But do you know that Paul never, to my own mind, talks about his own conversion in his letters? Have you ever noticed that? He'll give a kind of reference at the beginning of Galatians, a kind of prophetic reference back to Jeremiah, before I was formed, I'd been called to do this. But you'll never hear Paul say, you know, I was on horseback on the way to Damascus, and I got knocked off my horse. You won't believe He doesn't do it. He doesn't do it. Matter of fact, whenever Paul is forced to talk about himself, he does so in a way that really he, he doesn't like it. You're forcing me to be a fool, but I'll be a fool for your sake because I care about the gospel, so let me talk about me. But he doesn't want to do that. Why? Because Paul 
is like John the Baptist in the Guggenheim altarpiece. He's pointing away from himself to the gospel, and he's willing to talk about himself when it serves that end, but not when it's an end unto itself. And the modern historical critical scholars had viewed the study of Paul and his own psychology and the world out of which he wrote as an end unto itself. And for Bart, and for Paul we might add, that's just along the way to something much more And that is the canonical scriptures, the inspired scriptures that continue by the Spirit of God to communicate the very real and lived presence of Christ in our midst. That was what he was after. So this is how he responds in the second edition of the Epistle to the Romans, his commentary to his detractors. Basically, he says, if I have to choose historical criticism or the old doctrine of inspiration, I'm not afraid of historical criticism, but I'll take inspiration any day of the week. And then he gives this quote, one of my favorite Bart quotes. How energetically Calvin, and Calvin had sunk his teeth into Bart, how energetically Calvin, having first established what stands in the text, sets himself to rethink the whole material and to wrestle with it till the walls which separate the 16th century from the 1st century become transparent. Paul speaks, and the man of the 16th century hears. The conversation between the original record, that is, say, Romans, and the reader moves around the subject matter. What is that subject matter? God's triune revelation of himself in Jesus by the Spirit. It moves around that subject matter until a distinction between yesterday and today becomes impossible. The critical historian just needs to be more critical. And you know what he's saying there? They need to be more critical of themselves, of their own fundamental presuppositions that are never brought under critical scrutiny. They're just assumed. And Bart is saying, we need to bring those assumptions under critical scrutiny as well. Well, uh, Bart uh, was a pastor, and then he was uh, offered a position at the University of Göttingen, uh, which is in the Hanoverian region of Germany, uh, as as the uh, professor of Reformed theology. There's a bit of humor in this, and there's some irony in this. Now, he was offered this position as professor of Reformed theology in a Lutheran context, right? So he was a bit of an interloper, a bit of a kind of oddball uh, within within the community there. And he uh, he was brought in to do Reformed theology, but he had never done any work in it. None. So he comes in as a professor, and now he's supposed to be teaching on Reformed theology. His instincts are moving toward Calvin in the Reformed tradition, but he, but he does, he's, he's like, I wasn't trained in this. This is a new world for him. So you can imagine, for those of you who've done some teaching, how you're thrown into the deep end of the pool in an area that really you're, you're not all that familiar with, and yet you have to now lecture in an authoritative way on something. This is like my first year teaching Hebrew at Beeson. I'm so embarrassed to admit this, all right? So you teach Hebrew, man, there's a lot of bullsgeschichte going on, I guess is the way of saying it. Right? You know, like students, you know, students will ask, would ask a question like, um, you know, so you know, two weeks ahead of my, in the curriculum, so what happens in, when this occurs? And I would give this sort of, you know, very posh answer like, well, you know, don't, that, that, that's too much right now. Don't worry about that. You know, save that question for later. I didn't have a clue. I was like, I got, I got to go look that up myself. I mean, when you're first teaching, this, it's, it's hard work. He was slavish in this working hard on the Reformed Confessions, the Second Helvetic Confession, um, the Westminster Confession, um, the, uh, the con- just the Confessions go on, the Scots Confession, um, the 39 articles that he was engaging as well, the, the Confessions that came out of Zurich, the Confessions that came out of Bern, the Confessions that came out of Wittenberg, the Formula of Concord. He's engaging all of these feverishly to come to terms with them. He's engaging Calvin, who we learned last week he thinks of like the Himalayas. He speaks in Chinese. Um, he's engaging Zwingli. He's engaging Luther, who, by the way, he quotes more than any other theologian. He quotes Martin Luther. So he's engaging this, and he's finding his own voice in the middle of this, working hard, thinking about how to do theology. And look at this quote that comes out of his Theology of the Reformed Confessions, these lectures that he did on the Reformed Confessions. The statement that the authors were striving to make was this, that is, he's engaging one of the confessions. If we assume that we possess a holy text, then it cannot be a historical science that decides on its authentic form, especially because such a science by its very nature has no sensitivity for the holy, 
as does the theological decision-making of the church. Let me parse that out for you. What Bart is saying is, within critical biblical studies of that time, and I would say this is still the case even today, biblical studies is often treated as a science. That is, if you rigorously apply your methods, if you bring them to bear on the text, if you do your historical excavation, if you start dusting off the pots from the ancient Near East and do all of your work to make sense of it, then you can render the text and what the text is, how the text is supposed to be understood. And what Bart says is that, as helpful as all of those things are and can be, at the end of the day, they don't understand what the Bible is as a living Word of God, as something that's holy, as something that's sacred, as something that's sanctified and set apart as the unique means by which God continues to speak. Not just that He has spoken, but that He is speaking in and through this text. And if you come at it through just a pure scientific standpoint to treat that object as a scientific object, you will not be able to render the fruits that come from it as a word of God. You won't be able to do that. So you use all the tools you want to, Bart would say. And I would say that to you and to me as well. Use every tool that's on your shelf. As long as we always recognize that this text is holy and that it's God's word. And that leads us into our our first points here. Scripture as God's word and prayer. Well, it was 30 minutes. Um, okay. Um, well, well, we'll have to be judicious here. Uh, so here's the tension that we have. God has given himself to be known and really known. I've been giving some thought to this, frankly, uh, recently, about our knowledge of God and how we know God. Um, this is where, again, I think some of these old... Um, Old Protestant theologians are so helpful that the Bible is the, they called it the principium cognoscendi, right? The Bible is the primary, the groundwork for all of our knowledge. How do we know who God is? How do we know who God is and what he wants from us? There was no doubt about that in the history of the tradition, both Catholic and Protestant. That comes from the Bible, engagement of the Bible. This is extremely important. So we know that God has given himself to be known and really known. How God has revealed himself in Jesus corresponds to who he truly is. But it's not exhaustive. It can't be. We're talking about God here, aren't we? It's not God's knowledge of himself, right? But, because that's exhaustive and complete knowledge. It's provisional. This is the second part. Our knowledge of God and his ways is always provisional, and it's incomplete. We see through a glass darkly, Paul said. So what do we do with that tension? Where does that put us? That number one, we believe that God has spoken. He's spoken truly, and he wants us to know who he is. He wants us to know. And at the same time to recognize that you and I are human subjects, sinful subjects, and that our knowledge will always be provisional and incomplete. Where does that put you and me when we study the Bible? And the answer is very clear within the Protestant tradition and the Reformation tradition. It puts us in a position of absolute dependence on God. Look at this section here. With Calvin, we recognize that left to our own devices and our own skills, however hard we seek to hone them, we're never adequate to possess or manhandle or squeeze meaning out of the text of Scripture on our own accord. I mean, we say this kind of language all the time, right? This is the word of the Lord. And we all respond, thanks be to God, right? This is the word of the Lord. Now, I teach language for a living, so forgive me here. This is going to get a little bit technical. Um, and I know we've got an English guy here. Um, that's a genitive, the word of the Lord, in that sort of relationship, which you know, by the way, can mean multiple things. A genitive of description, a word concerning the Lord. That's what it's about. A genitive of object. It's a word that has its object of the Lord. That's what it's talking about as well. But the other way of understanding it is, and probably the primary way, is possessive. Possessive. It is the Lord's word. This is the word of the Lord. That means it's, it's his. And he dispenses with it as he wills by the power of his spirit. It's not something that we can make happen. And, and that's why I think we pray often when we preach and when we teach, Lord, make your word happen. Sanctify these words so that they will be your very own. I can't make that happen. No one can make that happen. God makes it happen. By the way, why preaching is such a sacrosanct thing. 
Something spiritual is going on right then when the Word of God, which is preached, comes to us in the living Word of God by the Spirit and something happens. A charismatic transference of power happens. God has to do that. We can't, we can't manufacture that. The Reformation tradition gets this. Our confession of Scripture is dogmatically or theologically located in our confession of Jesus Christ. We believe that Jesus, as attested in Holy Scripture, is God's Word. And the Scriptures are the written Word that point to Him, our primary source for knowing God's identity and will. And as we need the Spirit of God to quicken our dead hearts so that we can believe, that is, that be Christians, so too we need the Holy Spirit to open our eyes and our minds so that we can behold wondrous things out of His law. Exegesis or Bible study, reading the Bible, trying to understand the Bible. Exegesis without the Holy Spirit is a non-enterprise. It doesn't even exist. We come dependent on the Spirit. I want to give you a few quotes here. The first one is from uh, the Westminster Confession of Faith, which is a sort of founding document of the American and Scottish Presbyterian tradition. A lot of Anglicans involved in this document as well, by the way, historically. The whole counsel of God concerning all things necessary for his own glory, for man's salvation, for faith and life, is either expressly set down in Scripture or by good and necessary consequence, and boy, that has been a juggernaut of a you know, clause here, but by good and necessary consequence may be deduced from Scripture, unto which nothing at any time is to be added, whether by new revelations of the Spirit, Jesus talked to me this morning, oh, he did? Or traditions of men. Nevertheless, we acknowledge the inward illumination of the Spirit of God to be necessary for the saving understanding of such things as are revealed in the Word. So there's, there's no other place that we get authoritative revelation of God, the thus saith the Lord. We don't get that anywhere else other than the written Word of God as it witnesses to Jesus. Right? I think that's at the heart of what's going on here. But at the same time, we recognize the need, the subjective need as human agents for the illuminating work of the Holy Spirit so that we can understand what it is that's written there. That's that posture of, of dependence, word and spirit. Without the Holy Spirit, this might be a little bit provocative, I don't mean it to be, but without the Holy Spirit of God's work, the Bible is black words on a white page. That's what our understanding of inspiration is. Not just that the Bible was inspired through, through old agents, through authors, but that the Bible is inspired now. It's an alive, living document that continues to exert its force on the, on the people of God. Listen to what Calvin says. But I reply, the testimony of the Spirit is more excellent than all reason. For as God alone is a fit witness of himself in his word, so also the word will not find acceptance in men's hearts before it is sealed by the inward testimony of the Spirit. Now listen to, how, listen to the logic here that Calvin is, is putting forward. The same Spirit, therefore, who spoke through the mouths of the prophets, that's a claim to original inspiration, must penetrate into our hearts to persuade us that they faithfully proclaimed what had been divinely commanded. It's a powerful turn of phrase. The very self-same spirit that inspired Isaiah and David and Solomon and Jeremiah and John and Paul to do their writing ministry, their work, that same spirit has to penetrate our own hearts so that we will submit and, and recognize that what they said is true and that what they said is, is authoritative. Now I'm going to skip this next quote from John Frame. So what's going on here? So much more to be said on this subject. But I know that a lot of us, myself included, and I, I wrestle with this because I, I teach for a living, a lot of us want to know, well, what's the cash value of this? You're like, how do I, how do I go and do it? Like, give me the, the sort of the one, two, threes on how I now go. And now I know I'm dependent. Um, I need, you know, the Spirit of God. I don't get the Bible without the Spirit. Um, as hard as I work at it, it's got to be God's work in, in, our, in our midst. Now, how do I do this? Well, you know, I think one practical answer from this is prayer. Oh, it seems so obvious, doesn't it? But when you go to Bible studies, I mean, you're and someone gets up, and if I were to give you a, another 3x5 card, which I won't, I won't do that. If I were to give you another 3x5 card and say, okay, so give me, give me a, you're sitting with someone, they, they need Bible principles for, for the study of the Bible. Give them th give, tell them what they would do. 
I mean, we might put prayer somewhere in somewhere in there. But I think, I mean, this is kind of a bold statement, but I think the central and primary interpretive activity that takes place within the tradition would be prayer. If Augustine came in, right, and we have already saw him a few weeks ago. If Augustine came in and we said, you know, I want to be a good reader of the Bible, pray, be, be, be praying. If Calvin Luther came and said, I want to be a good reader of the Bible, start, pray. You, you remember uh, uh, Thomas Cranmer as well. I, I, don't want to read, I don't want to read falsely. Well, pray and ask God to give you a humble and a willing heart to do what you find there. Pray. I mean, it's prayer. <coughs> Would it be too far a stretch, says in here, to say that prayer is the primary exegetical or interpretive principle from beginning to ending? And Karl Barth, I don't think, thinks that's the case. It is prayer. I wanted to give you a few uh, quotes from him here. In, in his swan song, and by the way, if you're interested in reading something from Bart to kind of get an entree in, I would encourage you to read Evangelical Theology. This is what he wrote at the end of his life. He's reflecting on what it means to be a theologian, uh, what it means to do theology. I think you might be surprised. It's... Um, you know, it's it's a kind of take it or leave it thing, I guess. But for me, my heart was strangely warmed reading that the first time. I thought, wow, there's something here that um, this this man. Let me put it to you this way: this man is seized by the subject matter that he's studying. I mean, something has grabbed a hold of this man, and we'll say who it is, the living Lord has grabbed a hold of this man, and now he's in his 80s telling us that if you're going to be a theologian, a reader of the Bible, and that's all of us, by the way, you know, we're, we're Protestants in here, all of us are going to be theologians in our own way. If we're going to be theologians, the first place is the position of wonder, astonishment, overwhelmed at the content of the gospel, that this thing could even be true, that God would step off of his throne push through a woman's birth canal and enter into the world to redeem lost humanity. Who can get over something like that? Bart never got over it. He never got over it. And it's kind of, you know, a cutesy story. It's the kind of thing that, you know, I know. But it's true that Bart was asked sort of toward the end of his life, tell me what your theology is, right? He wrote volumes like this that can make your, you know, your head begin to spin when you get into it. Volumes. And he said that, you know, Jesus loves me, this I know. That's, that's my theology. And when he was also asked, and this is another great anecdote. So here's Bart, and he's got his students around him. And uh, he would drink wine while he would have them in his house and lecturing on his theology. Those were the days. And so he's drinking, and they've got the students. And a debate begins to ensue among his students. What is it that Bart is doing in the church dogmatics? And, and, the, and, you know, if you've been in, I mean, students like to talk, and they've got ideas, and that's great. And so they're going back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And, and then it dawns on them, well, he's right here. You know, let's ask him, right? So what are you doing? And he said, well, I do think, actually, that all I'm trying to do is understand what God is saying in the apostles and the prophets. It's the scriptures, an ongoing engagement of the scriptures. What are we doing? It's the Bible, the Bible, the Bible. Exegesis exegesis, exegesis. That's what we're doing. And in this evangelical theology, Bart says, what, what is the task of the theologian? The task of the theologian is ora et labora. Pray and work. Pray and work. And we tend, and this is a real fight that I think we have in theological education today, but also in the life of the church. I mean, some of us are, you think about the Marys and the Marthas, right? Some of us are kind of go-getters, Right? Some of us just like academic study. Some of us are more hands-oriented. We like to get out there and actually get busy doing the work of the ministry. And here Bart comes along and he says what the theological task is is both prayer and work. But not this way. It's not a linear construct as if, okay, now I'm going to do some reading of the Bible or some Bible study. So I'm going to pray from 6.15 to 6.30. And then I'm going to start studying the Bible. I'm going to pull off my lexicons. I'm going to get my Tim Keller or what, I don't know whoever you're reading. And, I'm going to, and then I'm, that's what I'm going to do then. That's not how Bart understood it. I think he understood the task, the labor part of being a student of the Word, of being a theologian, all of you, as a task from beginning to end, as an act of prayer. All of it is done in the presence of God. All of it is prayer. 
Benjamin Warfield, the great theologian in Princeton Theological Seminary, the early part of the 20th century, overheard two students debating, should I spend 10 minutes studying my paradigms or should I spend 10 minutes in prayer? And Warfield interjected and he said, well, why don't you spend 10 minutes in prayer while you're working on your paradigms? So we forced this kind of head-heart dichotomy, you know, that we live the life of the intellect. I just sort of, I like Bible study. Or I'm more effective in my heart. That's not at the heart of the tradition. At the heart of the tradition, it's both the mind and the heart that mutually influence one another. Light and heat. Intellect and affections. So that the study of the Bible creates a kind of love for what it is that we're actually, for what it is that we're actually studying. So what does he say about praying? Well, here's a few quotes for you. I didn't number my pages, I'm sorry. Number one. But it does not lie. And notice how this is a little of a side comment here. And this is why prayer must have the last word. In our power, but only in God. What does not lie? The ability to make the word of God happen. It relies on the power of God only. That this event should take place and therefore this witness of Scripture made to us. Notice what here the, the, the interpretive placement of prayer in this context. Prayer must have the last word. Or maybe another. we th- tend to think of that temporally. Let's think of it in another way. Prayer must have the ultimate word, the determining word in our reading of the Bible. Here's another quote. Only then, that is when we recognize that God is the author of his word, Do we realize that we cannot read and understand Holy Scripture without prayer, that is, without invoking the grace of God? And it is only on the presupposition of prayer that all human effort in this matter and penitence for human failure in this effort will become serious and effective. How's that for the title of a Bible study? Bible study. Repenting all the way through it. That's kind of what it is. We we repent. We recognize that we um, are are in a position of of prayer, and it's prayer that makes it serious and effective. The last quote here, and here Bart raises the stakes as he places prayer and exegesis in relation to one another and in their proper theological ordering. Because it is the decisive activity, and I thought, boy, this is a big statement. Prayer must take precedence even of exegesis. And in no circumstance must it be suspended. In other words, um, if one thinks about this in a, in a proper theological ordering, right, a theological ordering, prayer itself is even more important than the intellectual activity that we bring to actually trying to understand what this text is about. It's prayer. It takes priority. It takes precedence over what we, over what we do. Well, what do we do in our study of the Bible and the life of the church? Exegesis or the reading of the Bible, have this at the bottom there, is that constant and necessary activity of the church by which it reads Holy Scripture. Why? Listening for the divine voice. We're listening for the Word of God. And because of this theological definition of exegesis, prayer takes precedence over the exegetical task or method itself. It places us in a posture of of dependence. Let's flip the page here. I'll skip a lot of this and you can you can read it on your own. I want to talk about Bart's principles of exegesis. So this is going now to Bible study class with Bart. Right? How do you actually study the Bible? And he taught he sets this section in a very interesting part of the church dogmatics. That's his big um, uh, magnum opus gift to the church but he sets it, sets, sets it in the context of two types of freedom Bart has been called a theologian of, the, of freedom freedom of the word that is the word is sovereign to do his work and freedom under the word this is very important here And I have these sort of lists here. It is an impossibility, I will read these to you, in Barth's estimation, for the church's freedom to be dangerous and in opposition to the word because no such freedom exists. Boy, this is so relevant for us today in the church, especially in the Episcopal church. Let's put it out on the table, right? I mean, we're in the name of freedom, right? In the name of autonomy. 
in the name of religious experience, what we have done is set our own individual autonomy over against the freedom of the word. Bart would say that doesn't even exist. There's no such thing as that. That's not freedom. That's actually bondage. The true freedom of the Christian is a freedom that relinquishes self-autonomy, that relinquishes that absorption of the self, and puts itself in a position of subordination underneath the Word of God. That's where real freedom occurs. This is a real kick in the knee, frankly, of a kind of American individualized understanding of of freedom. He's, He's going after that here. Bart also places the burden of the individual conscience to live a freed conscience to the Word of God. Now, I'll flip this here, and I'm going to stop at this point and then take some questions. Look at this quote at the top here, the fundamental presupposition. One of my favorite Bart quotes ever. And I'm still not sure I really believe it, but I want to. Scriptural exegesis, which is at the heart of what is the task of the church theologically. That's, if, if you've got anything over the past three weeks, get that. At the heart of what defines the church's theological tradition is the elongated and detailed engagement of the Bible as the Word of God. That's what Christian theology has been. Scriptural exegesis rests on the assumption that the message which Scripture has given to us, even in its apparently most debatable and least assimilable parts is in all circumstances truer and more important than the best and most necessary things that we ourselves have said or can say. End quote. I do not think you can find a more robust statement that helps us understand materially what we mean when we talk about the sufficiency of Scripture. That scripture is sufficient in the life of the church, both to render the identity of God and the will of God for his people. It is sufficient. It gives us an account of what we we need to know and what we need to do. It's better than the best things we can say. I mean, think about it. That's a really hard pill to swallow. When you're talking about numbers, let's put this down, right? You're talking about the book of Numbers? That's better? I mean, you're talking about Leviticus? I mean, what about some of that weird stuff that's going on in 2 Kings? What about wheels and wheels and chariots and burning eagles and Ezekiel? That's really better than the best things we have to say? That's a hard pill to swallow, isn't it? But a confession about what the Bible is forces that on us, and listen to this, as an article of faith. Of faith. Not necessarily because I can look at it, and I tell this to my Hebrews, I was even telling it to them today. We're reading Genesis 12 in Hebrew, and Hebrew class Jay was there today. And I'm like, you know, here we are, now Abraham's going down, and, and he tells Sarah, you know, tell, tell Pharaoh that you're my sister. Because they're going to see you, you're really pretty, and, he, and they're going to kill me, and it's going to be fine for you. So, you know, tell him that you're my sister. She tells him, this is my sister. She ends up in Pharaoh's court. That's troubling. Um, there she is. And guess what happens to Abraham? Sheep, goats, donkeys, camels. I mean, it just goes great for Abraham. But this, and then all of a sudden, you know, Pharaoh gets attacked by God, right? And then he comes and says, "Why didn't you tell me she was your? Why did you tell me she was your sister when she's your wife?" Do you know how many gaps there are in that story? I mean, you're sitting there reading this story and you're going, "How in the world did Pharaoh find out? I mean, how did he know that even that the affliction that was on his house was because of this? Who told him that? I mean, how? I mean, there's. I mean, what happened between Sarah and? <laughs> you know? I mean, this is, this is sort of the grown-up part of the Bible. You know, like, like Esther. You know, these are difficult things. But Jewish scholars and Christian scholars have wrestled with this. I mean, what's Esther doing with King Ahasuerus? I don't want to think about it, right? I don't know. I don't know. But what's the point? The point is the Bible. It's, I'm not making a claim that the Bible is great literature. I don't feel like I need to do that. The Bible is the creaturely means by which God has communicated himself, and that's what it is. That's what I have right there. And it forces itself on us in a tyrannical fashion to subordinate our own intellectual autonomy to what the Bible is. Can I put it at the heart of the matter? And I think Barr affirms this 100%. I get this from him, actually, in the tradition. Do you know what is at the heart of biblical authority in the life of the church? And by the way, I don't know if I have this quote for you. Uh, No, I don't. Bart says in another place, we don't have the authority of Jesus, which is what makes the church the church, is it not? That Jesus is the authority. We don't have the authority of Jesus without the authority of the Bible. You cannot have the one without the other. And do you know where the rubber meets the road when it comes to the authority of the Bible? 
when we don't like what it says. That's where the rubber meets the road. I mean, think about the difficult issues that the Bible forces on us to think about and to submit to, to subordinate our own reason to that. I'm not talking, taking away from the difficult interpretive task of all the juggernauts that are in the Bible. They're all there. I get that. But at the end of the day, the posture that we have when we come to the Bible, because we believe that Jesus is Lord in the church and Savior, because we believe that, that means that we're going to submit ourselves to the authority of the Bible, even when it really is kind of uncomfortable, and even when it goes against assumed cultural norms. That's a continued challenge, and it will become an increasing challenge uh, as, as life moves on. And I think Bart is very helpful on this. Um, subordination. Well, look at these three steps to exegesis real fast. What are his steps? Three of them. Explicatio. This comes from the tradition. Bart's not making this stuff up. Explicatio. Explanation. What does that mean? That's why people go to seminary. That's why you go to Bible studies. That's why you sit down and, you know, subscribe to CBD magazine or get on Amazon to get the newest Bible study and whatever so that you can understand, well, what's this mean? What is it? What is an oak of Bashan? What, what are the oaks of Mamre? What is a cow of Bashan? Where is Tarshish? I mean, I mean, all the where was Tyre and Sidon? Gog, Magog? I mean, all the kind of things that we just don't know what it's talking about. So we need to kind of get in there and wrestle with the words that are there because those words are important. Every one of them are important. So we, can, we, can, we need help. And we get in there and we do that kind of explanatory stuff. But then there's a second step. And by the way, a lot of people treat Bible studies as if that's the end. Right? That's it. For Bart, that's just the beginning. The nuts and bolts, that's just beginning. The second step is what Bart calls in German, Nachdenken, thinking after, reflection, meditation. The Hebrew word for meditation is Chagah. It's onomatopoetic. It's a fun word. It's also the word that's used in Hebrew, by the way, whenever a lion has attacked its prey. You've seen this like on the National Geographic, and they're in a far distance, and all of a sudden the camera sort of goes in. And what do you hear while he's chewing that gazelle's belly? Right? That's Hagah. Right? That's meditating. That's reflecting. And that's what Bart's talking about here. You're reflecting. You're chewing on it. You're mulling it over. You're thinking on it. It's the middle ground between explanation and application. So you're thinking, you're reflecting, and then you go to the third part. And the third part is application or applicatio. Now this is a big deal. I wish I could give more time to this. But Bard is very clear here. Application, applicatio, is not a tack-on at the end of exegesis. In other words, I do all my formal scientific work, I get all my books out so that I know what Paul really meant, and then I try to think about, well, and how does that work out in our world? That's not a tack-on for, for Bart. That is ingredient to the one activity of exegesis. You do not have the exegesis of the Bible without applicatio, without the thus saith the Lord part of this. There's no ditch for Bart between the first century world or the ancient Near Eastern world of the prophets and the world in which we're in. There's no ditch there. There's no ugly ditch that Lessing talked about. No, that world impinges on us so that it has to continue to press us to think about our particular time and our particular place. And that's, by the way, why exegesis and theology is a, is a task that's never done. My children will have to do it, their children will, and the children after them, if the Lord tarries. Why? Because the times change, circumstances change, and the Word of God continues to bear on those, just like He did in our day, and just like He did back in Calvin's day, and then it goes all the way back to the apostles and the prophets. This is the Word of God that continues to speak. It's what the old reformers used to call the use of Scripture. Use of Scripturae. But here's how Bart ends, and I think it's quite beautiful. We tend to think of the use of Scripture as how we use Scripture to kind of understand God's will and ways, which is right. But Bart says primarily we need to understand that phrase in a different way. Not how we use Scripture, but how Scripture, by the power of the Holy Spirit, uses us. 
We press ourselves. We go into the study of the Bible. And all of a sudden we find ourselves in the narrative itself. And that our world begins to be shaped by a Bible-saturated world that witnesses to Jesus. That's why I like Karl Barth. Not because, God forbid, we have any more Bardians around. Um, Barth wouldn't have wanted that himself. Or Calvinians around, or whatever any end you want to be. Um, but because these great figures from the past that God has given to the life of the church as his gifts to us continue to show and point us down the direction beyond themselves to something more. And what is that more? Read the Bible for the sake of knowing Jesus. All right, what do you want to bat around? We have a few moments here. Why wouldn't you bar to use the analogy of a, of a frog in a laboratory? But the beaker and burning? Well, yeah, there's so often that when you look at Scripture, as a frog in a laboratory and we dissect it. Huh. And his, his nine, that we are the frog in the laboratory and he will dissect us through the Word of God. Uh, and I'll, I'll never forget that. It made it powerful. Yeah. Uh, one of the most intriguing courses I ever took in my life was a course on Bart's theology. Really? And it kind of made a, a big difference in my own. Huh. Theological training there, but it was the study of this that really kind of huh. turned me around. I think from huh. Sly Markey and Finkel, a way of dealing with scripture. I, I mean, I, I don't. I, I, this was, oh goodness, I was in seminary myself, and, uh, and I knew Schleiermacher was a bad guy, you know, because we just, we list all our bad guys out, and I actually think there's a lot of fruit to be to reading him, but that's another sort of conversation. But Schleiermacher was a bad guy. But then in seminary, now I had to read them for the first time, like really read them. And I began to read them, and I thought, I had this crisis. For, for those of you who are from a kind of pious world, you know, that I, I'm from as well, which I value deeply, I was reading Schleiermacher, and all of a sudden I realized that, uh-oh, that's my summer camp piety. So the whole, my whole, the whole world of Christianity becomes sort of collapsed in just me and Jesus, Right, so that what the sort of end of the Christian life is is not what we're doing tonight in community as the people of God gathered, but it's you know when I can kind of get off into the trees in the woods by myself and study my navel a little bit, maybe the Bible a little bit too, and something might happen. And I don't I, listen. I don't. I don't doubt all that's important. I mean, I think I value that much. But I remember reading Schleiermacher and having kind of one of those oh no moments. That he's a bad guy and that's me. That's my that's my theology right there. That's what I was you know. So I, 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 Bart was that for me as well, to kind of help me think through how do I order these things in a proper theological way that both gives glory to the objective character of what God has done for me. Did I share the story with you about when someone asked Bart when he got saved? You know, like, when did you get saved? And he said, I got saved, you know, 80, 30, outside of, I think, on a hill on Golgotha. That's when I got saved. I don't know when you got saved. That's when I got saved. Now, I mean, to, to, to value that objective reality but also to be able to give a proper theological account of what it means to be a human um, who lives in community and seeks to understand God in his ways. Uh, he's been very helpful for me in that. Yeah. I think it's very easy for us, well, I won't speak for everyone, I think it's very easy for me to say those people over there are the ones who are sort of manipulating the Holy Spirit or manipulating prayer to sort of turn into a continuing revelation to get out from under the word on these sort of big, bright issues. And yet, you know, the more you're a Christian, the more you realize the depth of your sin is such that I'm probably just as susceptible in ways that maybe aren't as glaring to, even in the midst of prayer and study, to soften the edges where it's convenient for me, if that makes sense. What would, you know, what would Bart say? What would you say? What, what are the... I don't want to say what are the signs, but how, how, what are the signs that we've now slipped into an area individually or even maybe as a, as a body where we've become the ones that are softening the edges in the name of you know, the Holy Spirit of prayer? Yeah. I don't think we really even have to look for signs, do we? I mean, we just assume it's, it's the case. You know, I mean, it is, it's the case. We're, that, we are, and this is where I've, I've found a lot of help in John Owen, the, the old Puritan Reformed divine, who understood even the whole life of faith, including the life of Bible reading, Bible study, as mortification and vivification, a putting to death 
and of being made alive. The Romans 6 stuff. Living into, by the Spirit of God and by His grace, the reality of our baptism. Let's use proper sort of Anglican language. That we are baptized. That we've been claimed. Um, and that is an ongoing process that, can, that puts us in a place of continued repentance as we read the Word of God. Assuming that to be the case. But the flip side of that, I think, is to also recognize that while we're in that position by His grace, um, that that does not paralyze us. Because right? this is the point. There, there can be, there, you can get paralyzed now from the necessity of, be, of doing the prophetic proclaiming work that still needs to be done, both to ourselves and to, and to the world and to the church. So I think that there's a sort of a, there's a sill and a cryptus here that you can crash on. And the one is a kind of false piety and humility um, that can say, you know what, we're all, we're all messed up and there's no, you know, a kind of, we're all in the sea of relativity, that we're all messed up, we're all sinners, so we can't know anything and just, you know, have the best, you know, have the best go at it you can. I mean, that's one rock. And then the other rock is, I completely understand this, I get this, why can't you see it like me, kind of rock, right? <laughs> now, so I think we live in between that, and that is why we must have a Trinitarian account of what it means to read the Bible and live in the life of the church. We're in a position of joyful anticipation, again, this is from the Reformation tradition, but in joyful anticipation that God's word will break forth once again. To believe and to trust and to hope in joyful anticipation, not in sort of a fretful place, but in joyful anticipation that yes, he will do it again. And he will not leave us without a word because his people are hungry for it. I think that's a good place, but we should assume um, that, you know, that, that there are areas where we are blind. The beam is there. Um, you remember Mark Twain's famous line? I love this from Mark Twain. It's not the parts that I don't understand. It's the parts that I do that really bother me. Um, I mean, you know, that's, you know, it's a, it's a good word. I was talking, my wife and I were talking about this the other day. And I hate you because I, I mean, Lord knows, um, I've, I mean, I've got my own issues here. But, you know, like when, when Peter, Apostle Peter says, if you don't love your wife well, your prayers are hindered. You know that's in the Bible, right? right? So if you don't love your wife well, your prayers are hindered. And I told him, I said, you know, I could think about a million ways to qualify that. Well, da, 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 da. It's like, but, you know, there, you hear it. i got to hear that, right? Um, then these are, I think these are important things that, that we all have to wrestle with. On page three, of the church via Holy Scripture, a pneumatic activity must occur. What is a pneumatic activity? I'm sorry, I know this, some of this is a holdover from class lectures. Um, the Spirit, Holy Spirit. That's another term for Holy Spirit. Is that a generally used term? Um, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's the Greek term for Spirit, pneuma. Yeah, that's, that's, that's not helpful, obfuscating. But Spirit, yes, sir. Thank you. Are you allowed to? Tonight? Yes. No. <laughs> one question. Uh, listen to you talk about all the different books that we talked about, even like tonight with Isaiah. It seems to me there's a movement towards God and away from God among the people. You know, like you talked about the transition between chapter 39 and 40 in Isaiah and that sort of thing. And I'm just wondering, in light of the way you describe the inexorable power of the Bible, and yet we're in this age of liberal theology. Are we sort of moving away from God right now as a culture? Mm-hmm. Is it a natural rhythm? Yeah. Maybe is what you guess. No, I, I, um, oh. um, the cultural stuff, I, I, you know, I, I have my reservations about that. Um, on a, and, and maybe this will reveal some of my, my own instincts about the role of Christians in in the larger culture. And my sense is, and I might change my mind on this, but my sense is that the way, the, the best way in which Christians act in culture is to be a prophetic witness, a faithful witness to a different culture. And it was, it's not, not necessarily the goal to go out there and, and to make America ancient Israel or to make America, you know, whatever we think it is. I mean, I, I was reminded of this in Philadelphia. And again, this is off my pay grade. Excise this from the recording. But I was in Philadelphia and was just struck uh, seeing Independence Hall. And there you are. I was there with my wife and kids. And we're waiting to see the Liberty Bell across the street. And then right across the street from Independence Hall was the first building of the American Philosophical Society. 
I mean, you realize, I mean, the, 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 there, we think about there's as much influence, a sort of enlightenment rationality within the way in which our founding fathers thought as whatever Judeo-Christian values are. I mean, I, I, I know that, boy, I'm sure I made some of you mad just then, but I mean, it's just, it's just a case. We hold these truths to be self-evident. That doesn't make sense without Kant. That doesn't make sense without continental idealistic philosophy. That's, a, that's not Judeo-Christian. Um, and I'm not saying it's not good and helpful. But I'm just saying we, we have to be very careful about sort of baptizing the culture in a way um, to render the line between the way in which the church exists and the culture exists. And to my sense, the way in which the church functions best within culture as is as an alternative culture that witnesses to a completely different way of living and being. We date in different ways. We marry in different ways. We think about the goals for our children in different ways. We think about what it means to live and die in different ways. Why? Because we're shaped by the authority of the Word of God in these things. And that is going to be, it, when that happens, by God, that's going to be a prophetic thing. right? Now, the other point that I think you're making, though, is what's going on in the life of the church as it relates to biblical authority? I mean, what's, wh- how does this work with, um, you know, I just think we have to put it out there. I'm, I've been thinking some of the clergy as well with Ephraim Radner and some other um, theologians who are basically just saying, you know, we live in a we live in a church that's under judgment. It's 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 in judgment, and 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 that's a scary thing. It's a very scary thing. Um, I don't. I just finished with Jay and, and the other class reading Bart's 50 small print pa- small print pages on Judas Iscariot. I mean, can you imagine? We're talking here maybe 30,000, 40,000 words on Judas Iscariot and wrestling with what is Judas doing? How do we understand Judas as both the Jew, that's an important point here, one who was whose feet were washed? I mean, you remember, we all know John 11. I mean, she's pouring out, Mary's pouring out ointment onto, onto his feet. And, um, and 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 uh, and Judas says, "Why was she? You know, we could have given that to the poor." But then it says, "But he wasn't really saying that about himself. And he wanted he was a thief." But you know that the parallel accounts in, in Mark and in Matthew say, "And some of the disciples grumbled." And then in Matthew says, "Some of the now definitively more disciples than this Judas were the." In other words, you, I can't get Judas out of there. He's at the Eucharist. His feet are being washed. He repents. You know, I, I, we're just left in a real tension there. But of the apostles and that recreated church, there he is. It's just, it's, it's a mess. It's a mess. So I think we live in that. I don't, I don't have any sort of formulaic answers on that. I think it's very, very difficult. I'm still trying to get my mind around it myself, and I think a lot about it. I do, because I think it's very important, and it's very important in the life of our church, isn't it? Um, but I think we have to continue to reflect on these things as our particular position and our posture in gracious humility. To witness to something other, right? And God give us humility and grace as we do that, because it can really sound self-righteous and pretentious. But the witness to no, no, you know, that was the title of one of Bart's most famous books. Nine, no, no. And so I yeah. take sixty seconds. Tell us about your next series at the Advent Sunday morning. Um, we start in uh, two weeks. Where we'll do three weeks on the Trinity, um, and so we'll do. Um, Old Testament reflection on the Trinity, um, New Testament reflection on the Trinity, and then the third week will be theological reflection on the Trinity. Um, so I think we titled it something really sexy like yeah. The Trinity. Oh, my mother and father are here, yes. Yeah. Right here, my mother and father gave me birth. And all the things I've said about them, I take back, whatever that was. Thank you. Let's go forth into the world rejoicing in the power of the Spirit. Thanks be to God.